history. We have a Blyweiss lecture one. Introduction, Breshit Bar Elkim, Esashemai, Mesaret. Before we actually get to history, let's talk about history. Is it a Jewish study? Some would question that. Is it something authentically that uh, Jews have been preoccupied with throughout history? Um, arguably, you can start with the Pasuk that we're going to get at in Parsha soon enough. The Pasuk tells us in, in Parsha Sazinu, Zohor Yemos Olam. Uh, remember the the words the the the, um, the days of eternity. These are the days the the, the Pesuk tells us you have to ask questions, you have to understand. But from the get go, the Torah presumes that we are historically minded people. Pesach uh, Seder every year we sit down, fathers and sons, grandfathers and grandsons, grandmothers, granddaughters, and we relive not just. Yitzhiyah Mitzrayim, the exodus from Egypt, but we relive everything, and we're supposed to ask, we're supposed to probe, we're supposed to be engaged, and we should be living it vicariously, which I hope to do in the course of this year. It's a bit ambitious. You'll see what I'm going to We're going to be doing um, as much as I can, all the good stuff and all the bad stuff. The bad stuff also is engaging and interesting. Uh, it gets grueling. We're going to re-experience the Spanish Inquisition. Uh, we have a whole understandably long piece on the Shoah. We'll talk about the state of Israel and um, all of which what I'm trying to do, and it's sort of not much else out there quite like this. What I am trying to do is give an authentically Jewish view. What would, how would, if, if we had a, something like a Torah history, how would that sound? What would be the things that we would emphasize? You realize there's no such thing as an objective, unbiased history. Anybody who tells history, and I'm no exception, I'm guilty as charged, um, anybody who tells a history is choosing some details to include, omitting other details, Whatever you do, that's, uh, that, that, that's, that's what it is. What I'm trying to do is, is uh, as, I, as I mentioned before, is to give you all that information that I think you need to know to be a committed, knowledgeable Jew today. Um, we understand that um, history repeats itself. That's, a, that's an idea that the non-Jewish historians talk about. I'll quote a few. Some of these things are quotable. I have some really interesting quotes. So Karl Marx, we know, was a German economist. In the 19th century, he says it like this. He quotes Hegel, who says that somewhere history, he says Hegel remarks somewhere that history tends to repeat itself. So Marx says he forgot to add the first time it's tragedy, the second time as farce. Okay, that's one cynical view. There's a Spanish philosopher by the name of George Santayana who said that those who can't remember the past are condemned to repeat it. And my tangent that I was just going to mention, as I as we endure yet another round of fighting in the, in the latest, uh, the umpteenth war that went on in Israel this summer, and you read the international press, and you think, you see the naivete, I, mean, I don't know if you follow this at all, but the naivete of the commentaries and the editorials, it's as if Israel came into existence yesterday, and there has never been a history, and people are totally clued out of anything that happened prior to this. Don't they know that the Palestinians were offered an opportunity of statehood? Don't they know them? And the answer is no, they don't. We live in a, a terribly myopic word. Myopic is just a fancy word for short-sighted. People don't know much beyond the latest news cycle. And even then, they, they generally don't know. We have a very shallow existence. And if you don't know what's going on in history, again, you're doomed to repeat it. There's another famous quote. This, this time it's from a British-Lithuanian a fellow by the name of Max Beerbohm, who says that history doesn't repeat itself, it's the historians that repeat one another. 
Uh, no, no, come on, crib off of each other's uh, notes. I do that too, by the way. I, a lot of my stuff, what I do, I'm constantly revising this course because what I'm doing is um, when I hear something gishmak, that's Yiddish for gishmak, uh, when I hear something really amazing, I go, oh, that gets in history. And I get these random things, and because history covers everything, there's always a place in my history class for something new and good. So if you have good sources, you, you told me you had a great source on something earlier. If you have good stuff, not something unrelated, but I'm saying, if you have good stuff that I don't know about, I would be uh, forever uh, indebted to you. If you could bring it to my attention and, 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 and tell me, I want to understand. Part of my understanding here is I think the more we understand our past, the more insightful we can be about our present. Um, Mark Twain said it, said it very famously. I almost consider this is so famous that I almost consider maybe I shouldn't put it in, but it's too good not to have it in there. Mark Twain, who interestingly, it's not a class on Mark Twain. Mark Twain was not necessarily known to um, love the Jews particularly. Uh, I don't know if we actually put him in the ranks of uh, classic anti-Semites, but he was hardly our friend. But he had, he had the following to write about Klai Yisrael in a Harper's Magazine article in 1899. The article was called Concerning the Jews. And this is what he said, and it's right on the head. He had it as follows. If you, has anybody never heard this before? Vaguely, vaguely. Okay, it's fantastic. It's fantastic. Afterwards, everybody says, Ooh, could you email that to me? By the way, I have an email, and I'm happy to be in touch with you. If you, if you want me to send me my material, it's, it's yours. I'll give it to you. Menashevlywise at gmail.com. Pretty straightforward. Um, email me. This, this, is, this is definitely quotable. It goes like this. If statistics are right, the Jews constitute but 1% of the human race. The Jew ought hardly to be heard of, but he is heard of, has always been heard of. He is as prominent on the planet as any other people, and his commercial importance is extravagantly out of proportion to the smallness of his bulk. His contribution to the world's list of great names in literature, science, art, music, finance, medicine, and abstruse learning are also way out of proportion to, the weak, to their weakness in number. The Jew has made a marvelous fight in this world, in all the ages, and has done it with his hands tied behind him. The Egyptian, the Babylonian, and the Persian rose filled the planet with sound and splendor, then faded to dream stuff and passed away. The Greek and the Roman followed, made a vast noise, and they are gone. Other people have sprung up, have held their torch high for a while. It burned out. They sit in twilight now, or have vanished. The Jew saw them all, beat them all, and is now what he always was, exhibiting no decadence, no infirmities of age, no weakening of his parts, no slowing of his energies, no dulling of his alert and aggressive mind. All things are mortal but the Jew. All other forces pass. He remains. What is the secret of his immortality? So he wrote, what do you answer? What do you say? Hey, great, I mean, very on the nose. But what, is, what do you say? What's the secret of the Jews' immortality? You could say we do have connections. We do have, indeed have connections. Avina Shabbat Shemayim loves us to pieces. When we are unified, we're in our best possible format. We've never been better than Har Sinai, Ishachai, Belebachai. We're one man, one heart, and, and, and we do our best. And that's the model we're aspiring to at other times in history. I don't know if you know, I mean, you know, 
lately, last couple hundred years, uh, the unity thing has not been going very well for us. You notice that? We'll be doing a lot in modernity. Obviously, uh, my history is very subjective and biased. There'll be whole periods of time that we zip by because it's not just not relatively important, and other periods will we, will we dwell on because sometimes they're more important than others. Jesse. Right. So we have the Torah, which outlines every single aspect of life and how to live. And that's awesome. Beautifully put. We have the Torah. We have the Kaddish Baruch Hu. That's right. That's the secret of our immortality. 100%. Fantastic. Are you? Sharpen our mind as well. Right. More suited for Thanks for saying that because that's definitely, I guess, the subtitle of this class. All the history that's relevant for us to lead good lives. So we can understand, you know, obviously we all aspire to this, we want to be better people, we want to be better individuals. How do you go about doing that? Wouldn't it make a lot of sense to study how in the past, they tried, you know, we were, we're not the first idealists to be born on this planet. But wouldn't it make sense to try to understand how previous idealists tried to lead a good life, blew it on many occasions, so that we could try to figure out how to make a go of it in the best way for the future. And, 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 and therefore, I mean, what I have in here, I think one of the reasons why history in many classes is dreadful is they go over stuff that just doesn't matter. I mean, you know, sometimes you can get into a battle story that makes for good cinema but isn't really relevant to my life. So what, that's nice, I've got people blew their heads off. That's nice, but like, you know, how does that help me become a more moral individual? That's what Jewish history teaches. That's certainly the way we're gonna focus on it. Um, here's another perspective, here's Ruf Yaakov Emden. I quoted him on the way to the Kosel the other day, if anybody was uh, paying attention, he's the one who talks about Dabim at the Kosel, the Dabim of all your life. Uh, so he, he writes like this, in his Sidur, he says like this, when I consider these great wonders of Am Yisrael, the Jewish people's continued existence, they take on greater significance than all the miracles Hashem performed for our ancestors in Egypt, in the desert, and then later when they entered Israel. The longer the exile extends, and you have to picture this, he's writing this, he's sitting in Amsterdam in the 18th century when he's writing this, in the middle of the worst of times, post-Shabtai Tzvi, we'll spend a lot of time on Shabtai Tzvi too, false Messiah, he says, he says, the longer our exile extends, the miracle of Jewish existence becomes even more obvious. And what is our, what is our purpose? It's to make known to the world that Hashem is the master over the entire world, now and throughout time. Right? And that's what we're doing, that's what we're supposed to do. It's, it's interesting to me, when you have this consciousness, you will lead an important life. If you lack this consciousness, you might lead a good life. But you, know, you can't help but feel, wow, I'm alive at this amazing time in history. And I think you'll feel that even more so if you understand me, everything that came before. Understand, you realize, Kalal Yisrael, right now, we're back in our holy land. Okay, we got lots of problems. It's by far, far, far from perfect. Um, but, but we're here, and the potential's raw, and you know, we're learning, we're sitting right down the street. You know what's right there, out the window, right down the street there? At the base of Mikdash. Right? And we don't know exactly when, tomorrow, next day, no, no, it's going to be rebuilt. Right? We're right near the center of life, center, center of gravity of the universe. You know, I, I, what's amazing to me is how dense and um, clueless people are. They can walk around like in a vague haze, unaware of the significance of their lives, of the times that we're living in. Anyway, history is supposed to slap you around and make you realize. So our question is, is studying history mutter? And the answer is not so possible. Before we, before we plunge into actual history, what's the answer? Are you allowed to study history? What could be the problem? Why would there even be a question? People so 
It's true. It's true. But I have to say, this Chumash is written for a lot of reasons. It's not just telling you history. A dry, you know, and then this person moved to Israel, moved to Jerusalem, and then they went like, right? There are books like that. A lot of teachers will sound like that, too. There's a lot of parts in and interesting, but I, but I would assert to you that if you read them, if you're learning them carefully, they're all teaching you morality. Every last dry technical detail that appears to be dry and technical actually has moral dimension. And here's the issue, and it's actually on the pages of the Shulchan Aruch. By the way, you're encouraged to ask me and everybody else questions. If I throw out an idea, a concept, a book, a name of somebody, you don't know who it is, make me define my terms. Who's the Shulchan Aruch? Rabbi Yosef Karo in the 16th century, one of the superstars of Jewish history, wrote the Shulchan Aruch as the definitive. He, together really with Rabbi Moshe Israeli, stepping Krakow in Poland, came up with the united Sephardi Ashkenazi basic code of Jewish law that we live by till today. And he addresses our question and he, he points out that it's prohibited, this comes up by Hilchel Shabbos, interestingly, it's usher to read what he calls Sifre Milchamos, a certain genre of literature called war books, and he, he, he cites the following reasons. Um, and what he's talking about is not at all what we're going to be doing. War books where they just wallow in the blood and guts. You know those kinds? They got movies like that nowadays, no? It's all about like, you know, and then, and then at the end of the day the guy walks away, you know, with, you know, victorious, but like it only sells tickets if you have if you have a certain amount of dismembered body parts. And he says the problems with such things is that it's Moshev Leitzim, which means it's, it teaches you a certain kind of skeptical, cynical kind of perspective on the world. It's not the classic Torah approach. Um, it leads you off the derech. It um, incites the Sahara. I imagine there's some pretty women in the movie. Uh, it does all kinds of other things. It's a waste of time. And um, it depends. The Ramah adds a caveat. He says, you know, if they're written in Lashon HaKodesh, he says, if they're written in the Holy Tongue, then it's okay. And what commentators understand is that if they give you a spiritual dimension, then it's a good thing. So you have to know, like pretty much everything in the world, you have to know, is this something that's going to take me, help me deepen my life and get me closer to God? Then obviously that's great. If it's just, as we said, a bunch of, uh, I don't know, revenge uh, fantasy, uh, you know, things that at the end of the day, all right, right kind, of, kind of reaction, that's very nice, but I haven't grown as a human being. Here's some of the cons. Here's some of the people who are who are against the idea of studying history. Rav Chaim Ozerguzensky was a Gadol Hadar in the early 20th century, and he says he says you know in the past we didn't really talk about history so much. You don't have Gedolim delving into it. Um, he says he says maybe they touched on it by chance or in passing, but they were more involved in actually learning Torah, learning morality, learning halacha, learning good midos. Um, there's another version of a similar idea. Do you know who, who um, Bialik was? Bialik is, is called Israel, the secular country of Israel, has a national poet laureate, that's Bialik. Bialik, uh, Chaim Nachman Bialik, started his life as a relatively somewhat religious guy, the electricity went off, it'll come back on, as a semi-religious guy, he went to the yeshiva of Volozhin, right, Volozhin means something? Right, so he went to Volozhin, and um, he left, and he went off, and it's arguable maybe he was never even from to begin with, but later on in life, he comes back and he's reunited with um, with one of the great Rashi Yeshiva of Europe, Rav Leibovitz. And when Bialik came to Rav Baruch Ver, this is a true story, he said, Rav Baruch Ver, you can't believe how amazing it is to be at university. 
I always feel like I'm sitting up in, in, in yeshiva in Or Sameach, and I was in university just up the hill in uh, Hebrew University. You realize Harat Sophim, Hebrew University is just up the street. So he said, he said, he said, you don't know in yeshiva, you guys are missing out from university. He says, we're learning everything. University entertains all knowledge. You would benefit so much from it. So Baruch there was unmoved. I'm not impressed. He said, the enlightenment, which you guys do up there at university, teaches us, you're right, it teaches us stuff. It tells us when Abayah was born. Abayah, one of the great figures from the Talmud. It tells us when he died. It tells us where he lived his life and where he's buried. He said that in the Gemara, Abayah is still alive and well. And he's teaching me daily about how to lead a better life. The enlightenment has buried Abayah and tells me where he's buried. And we bring him back to life. What you guys have done, he says, the Haskalah, the Enlightenment, is a grossa hevra kedisha, big burial society. But in, in, in yeshiva, we're trying to um, reanimate it. Here's another negative view of history. It's a really, listen to these points. It's kind of funny that I'm a history teacher giving all this stuff, right? But, but it's, uh, we should consider, I, I'm into understanding everything. I like to understand MS, that's what I understand history is, and that's, that's my interest here. So um, help me out here, try to, t tell, me, tell me if this makes sense. Rav Shimon Schwab writes like this. He says, history, if you're going to do a job of history, and I think he's referring to most secular history, it's not what we're going to do here, but he's critical of history. He says, history has to be truthful. Got to tell it as it was. That's nice. He says, he says, a book of history has to tell us the bad stuff and the good stuff. Um, it can't spare the tzaddik when he fails, and it can't skip the good part, the good stuff of the Russian. The problem is, is that any history is going to be partial. It's going to be subjective. It's what, it's what I said before. It's only what you want to, you want to include. Only a navi, only a prophet really can tell you exactly what it was. But there's no, and I'm paraphrasing, I'm breaking away from this thing. But there's no real way of getting a clear, objective history. Um, there was, back in my movie days, do you know there was a famous movie from Japan in the early 1950s called Rashomon? Ring a bell, anybody? So this interesting study, Akira Kurosawa movie, in which he tells a story with four characters, four protagonists, and then he retells the story a total of four times, and each of the protagonists tells the story from their own perspective as they experienced it, and it's totally radically different, depending, I'm sure it's been redone by other lesser people, but what is interesting, and that really tells about life, we all experience the same thing in radically different ways. And so comes from Schwab and says, no person can actually really recount what happened with objective clarity and truth. He says a truthful historian would have to violate the Israel of Loshon Hara. He'd have to say bad things. Uh, he says, sometimes they have to speak, speak Loshon Hara against dead people, because we're talking about people who've been long dead a lot of the time. They can't defend themselves. You know, you can't make, by the way, what do you do if you want to make chupa? You said Loshon Hara against somebody who's dead? Yeah, even the, excellent. That's the right answer. You have to bring a minion out there, and there's a certain thing you say, and you ask for kapara. And even then, you can't get complete kapara from that because it's never full chuba. You never got mechila. The guy never forgave you because he's dead, right? So he says it's a big problem. He says he says what purpose is served by preserving um, such a realistic <coughs> historical picture when it slanders people in the past 
And he raises these, he raises certain issues. I'm going to give the counterpoint now why history, as long as you keep these caveats, these warnings in mind, why history could be a really fantastic thing, and obviously what we're doing here. Why should you study history? Here are a couple ideas in the post scheme why it's a good thing. You know, Shimshir Fowler says, when we study history, we can draw the right conclusions about what the Jews are supposed to do in the world. It helps us understand what we're doing in this world. Chazon um, Ish says we have to study. As we said before, we're gonna, we're gonna, if we don't, we're going to repeat mistakes of our past. Um, he says also, he's, he adds a point. He says, we have a lot of really fault, we have a lot of bad historians out there, um, people who convey false or distorted histories, and Chacham, and I think you should all look at yourselves as Chachamim, everybody who's oriented in Tyra, any, um, has to correct the record, has to put things straight and clarify the truth. Um, that's kind of what I'm doing here. That's, what, that's, that's our goal this year, is to try to set the record straight. As long as we're not speaking Lashon Hara, we're not trying to, uh, to do anything that's wasteful, or quite the contrary, we're trying to learn Musur. This is, for me, the most powerful Musur, because we learn about where we've been, so we know where we can go to. By the way, what we're doing today is not really typical. Typically, we're going to be telling a lot of stories, we're going into a lot of really interesting aspects of history, sometimes the persecution, sometimes the great moments. What's the greatest moment in history? We're giving a Torah. Giving a Torah, most important moment in history. What else? Creation. Creation of the universe. Pretty good. I will do that today. That's what I said. We're going to create the universe today. Um, you know what else was really amazing? What was all of my Sabreshi's waiting in dread for? And we reached a pinnacle that we've only gone down from since that time. Yeah, Beisab Mikdash is but Which Beisab Mikdash? First one. Shlomo Melech's Beisab Mikdash was glorious. We'll talk about it. It was fantastic. Amazing moment, right? We're going to be basking and reliving that moment. When you when you see that, you see where we are, and you know we're very optimistic. One of the nice things about learning history, I don't know about your your other history classes that you might have learned in the past, but one of the things that's such a downer about a lot of history is that is this secular kind of sense of pointlessness in the world, and we're doing the mistakes, we repeat the mistakes in the past, and we don't really know where we're going to, and it's this kind of society where you know it's all trying to work for the betterment of mankind, but there's no long term vision. You know, the Torah's vision is ultimately optimistic. We're rebuilding that building down the street. Shrili, you see this building over here? Right down out there at about oh, 20 minutes, 30, 25 minutes, just down the way, is the Makom where the Besa Mikdash in the first iteration stood, second, and the third one is going to be built. We know that mostly from the, the Navi Yechezkel. We'll talk about the third Besa Mikdash too. And we're going there, and we might, all of us, be actual active, active participants in its rebuilding, especially if we, uh, we really adequately know this. I mean, I hope that you become um, history buffs and knowledgeable and proficient, and you know all these personalities and dates and names. It's another reason why I encourage you to take notes. Um, last comment before we, before we create the world. We're about to create the world. Um, one last, one last uh, difference that I, I, set as, I set myself aside, what we're trying to do. I'm not the only one. There are other Jewish historians who are trying to set the record straight. Um, there is a tendency among secular historians, and not just secular, but secular historians definitely, they um, have a tendency to project themselves onto history. We all kind of do this too. It's one of the tricks whenever you're learning a subject that you don't really understand because some of the things are beyond us. We're going back in the beginning of time. There are aspects of the, that time period that are simply beyond us. Before the flood in the antediluvian world, life was different in ways we can't really fully fathom. But what they do then is project themselves onto the past. It's like a bad Hollywood movie where you could just, it just, you know, they're, they're making a movie about I don't know what, you know, something in the Torah. And you could just smell Hollywood all over it. 
And it's so obviously it wasn't like that. You ever had that reaction to movies? Yeah. Yeah. Like it's bad historical like cinema? <laughs> for sure, for sure it is. But listen, my interest here is truth. I want as best I can, my, what I try to do, and please correct me on this too, um, as I, I, some of you came in a little bit later, I, this is a work in progress. I kind of look at us as collaborators, and I would love your input and your corrections as we go along. If you don't understand something, if something doesn't strike you as a mistake, by all means raise it and, and, and correct me. I'm constantly revising this and, and my notes. But um, what I'm pointing out, though, is a problem that we all run into. We project from ourselves onto others. Right? You know, like inevitably, you meet new guys, you're meeting all kinds of new people now, right? So you meet somebody who looks kind of like the guy you knew in high school, so immediately you say, oh yeah, you're one of those kind of people. No? You know, that kind of experience? Yeah. Right? So it's a similar thing. Don't do that. It's so irrational, and as you get to know the person, you realize he's totally different than the guy who maybe looks the same. And the same thing in history. We think we know what the experience is like, but hold off, suspend judgment for a second before you really understand. I'll give you an example of what historians tend to do. Classically, a secular historian will describe a great figure like Rav Sa'ad Gaon. You've heard of Rav Sa'ad Gaon, yeah. the great Gaonim, like before the Rishon, Rav Sa'ad Gaon, and they'll say, oh yes, he was a philosopher. What's the guy doing? He's saying, yeah, because I'm into philosophy, so I assume he was a philosopher. Rav Sa'ad Gaon was a philosopher as much as I was a plumber, and I'm not a plumber. I don't know anything about plumbing. About plumbing. What he's doing is he's saying he's taking the bits and pieces about Rav Sa'ad and he's projecting him onto what he likes, or, or, or like reducing the Rambam to being a doctor. Okay, you know, one of the many, many, many facets of the Rambam's existence was yes, he happened to know medical science, that's how he made a living. But it was utterly a footnote in, his, in, in a big, huge scheme of the Rambam's great life, monumental life, he's so much more than a doctor. But it's, it's our fanciful thinking we project backwards in ways that we just, I'm only pointing out, just catch yourself in the act. Some things are much more than we can understand, and we, should, we shouldn't fall victim, you know, we shouldn't be guilty of that, of that kind of, uh, you know, misinterpretation. I mean, what was the world, do you know that before the flood, in the Antediluvian world, it was a perfect, what they call, vertinal equinox, which is this fancy way of saying it was always springtime. The fruit on the trees were always delicious and perfectly nutritious to the point you didn't have to eat very much. I mean, how do you imagine such an existence so immediately we start thinking, well, what would that be like? But I don't even know what fruit in the tree tastes like that's as, that's as sweet as that. Alternately, in the days of the base of Mikdash, this is, this is the Mishnah in, in Sotha, in the days of the base of Mikdash, the world was a quantitatively, qualitatively different place. You know what the color of the sky used to be? Green. Blue. What is this? This is nothing. This is nothing. We don't know from blue skies nowadays. We used to listen, we had the music. Imagine yourself in that moment when you have the music and it's you got all the stereophonic. All, I don't even know what they have nowadays with all the high tech stuff. But it's like all around you, just you're just like you're like in the clouds. You're just soaring, right? Multiply that maybe by a few thousand, and you have a slight, slight understanding of what it was like to have the music, the bass, and make touch. Utter, utter spirituality. Okay, so it's a different time, a qualitatively different kind of experience. So I say that doesn't. Elon, you're right. At the end of the day, you know, all we have is ourselves, and all we have is our vocabulary, as limited as it is, and our, and our experiences to project. But we have to realize, in the interest of intellectual honesty, we have to realize we're limited. We can't fully understand everything, and we're, we're seeking to try to understand as best we can. Um, last, last topic for today, um, Hashem created the world. This probably is the best example of something that I don't even know what that means. 
Certainly I can't wrap my brain around it. So these are the following comments I want to make on the subject, even though we can spend, spend the entire year right here. Um, we, we look at the creation of the world from a Jewish perspective. Before Breshis, nothing in the physical world that we know existed. Hashem commanded, and suddenly, through spectacular miracle, everything came into existence. Rambam explains in Hilchos Yisodei Hatayra, he says, there is nothing but Hashem, Ein od no hado, we had it in Parsha a few weeks ago, there's nothing but Hashem, the only true existence is Hashem. And in his kindness, in his compassion, he created this world as an opportunity for him to give. So now, think about this. Everything in creation is made by him. That means that everything creation has a function, and the Torah's way of understanding that everything exists in order to serve a Kaddish Baruch Hu. How do you do that? Those things are meant to serve those elements of creation that are serving a Kaddish Baruch Hu, because you realize in creation, not everything is in sync. Not everything is worshiping a Kaddish Baruch Hu. Everything in the end is for the tzaddikim. That's how the Torah posits it. Um, that's why, and think about it. Think about what you do know about Breshis. You think about the Torah. Immediately, you get these big fireworks. You get the whole dramatic story of Breshis Barlokim, but it's told in pretty brief, codified terms. Kind of blows us away. We don't really, it's hard for us to imagine what's really going on. Immediately you go from the sublime, from the transcendent, and immediately it's brought down to the, to the level of the individual. And who are the individuals? You get Adam and Chava and Cain and Hevel and Noah and Avram and Yitzhak and Yaakov. You have Tzadikim. You go from the cloud to the prat, you go from the general to the particular. Immediately the Torah focuses on the individual, passing on the message that everything is here for serving Hashem. And who does that? The Tzadikim. That's the whole, that's, that's a massive message of Breshis. The Torah does not, and this is actually anybody who listened to my share earlier today on the science and Torah, the Torah really doesn't get into too much of the mechanics of science. How does the world, the gases and the Big Bang, the Torah doesn't say much about that with the, with the clear message of we can't really get that anyway, so let's get to the moral dimension. What are, what are we doing here? What can, how can we as individuals make a, a meaningful difference in existence? That's what Breshis Barat Elohim is, is focused on. Our history, the Jewish history, and it's not the history that you get out there in much of the world, our history is linear. There's a beginning, that's a major point of gracious for Elohim, we have a beginning, there's a middle, that's what we're kind of looking in right now, that's the messy stuff, and there's an end. We're going somewhere. I don't know if you realize this, that's an incredibly optimistic statement. Much of the world thinks that history inevitably repeats itself, and we're doomed to repeat the failures of the past. Um, they're nihilistic, which means they're doomsdayers, they're doomsayers, they, uh, they, um, you know, they don't really see the, 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 the light at the end of the tunnel. Um, it's a very depressing history. But the Jews understand, no, 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 there's a purpose to everything. I mean, to me, it's amazing that more people aren't historically minded. You know, I kind of want to go out and preach everybody, learn all this stuff, get this, and if you don't like my class, go do it on your own, go do it better. Uh, there are other good books. I can recommend some books, too, if you want to start reading some good histories. They're good, and then there's the stuff that I don't necessarily recommend as much. Um, we'll do that later on, bibliography. But um, but if when you when you when you see what we're what we're doing, we're going someplace meaningful, and you can become part of that. Um, my life has a purpose. You know, the people are very depressed today. You know, the, the dominant mode of thinking today is that there's no point. 
Think about the, think about the counterculture. Think about the rock music. Yeah, you know, give me, give me an example. I uh, give me something from my time. You know, the um, don't know. Uh, bad '70s pop music. I'm gonna, I'm gonna quote. I just came up to my mind. I don't know why I just thought of this. Kansas. Kansas? No, you don't know about it? Oh, yeah, yeah. Dust in the Wind. Yeah, I love I that song. It's a stupid song. Yeah, Objectively. Oh, the, 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 the music is great. The music's fine. No, but, but think about the lyrics. All we are is dust in the wind. That's just so depressing. I want to go to the corner and cry. I sing oh, Dust in the Wind and Jim Kipper. It's like Novartic, he said. I'm nothing, I'm a worm. That kind of idea. It's true, it's true. No, but think about the difference. Think about Novartic. With the author Novartic, Right? So think about the, what they're really saying, and it's feeling you're looking forward to what I know what you're thinking of. The message is, I really am tiny. Because Baruch was amazing. And he had the chesed to make me a part of his world. Once I establish who's who and what's what, and I can see that even as tiny as I am, I have a role to play, then it's a great life. It was the dust in the wind aspect is meant to help me get over my innate, my innate arrogance. And, and really see myself in the, in the big scheme of things. So how would that what they're saying is, all we are is dust in the wind, no mention of a Kutch Baruch there's no godliness there, and therefore it's kind of a same old song. Isn't that the lyric? Help me remember the lyrics here. Same old song, yeah. right? And it's, it's like this doomed, repetitious, sad, pointless kind of existence. Do you know, the scientists share this view. Do you ever, anybody know Carl Sagan? Jewish yeah, guy, Carl yeah, Sagan, Cosmos, the astronomer. Yeah, I love it. He has one of his classic books. It's an old book. I just from my days. He wrote a book called Cosmos, which is stunning in terms of, from the perspective of Ma Rabu Masech Hashem, how wondrous are your works, Hashem? You see the wonders of creation. But Sagan is a hopeless um, atheist. At the end of this, he explores the universe in this amazing detail of all the miracles, and then his conclusion is that it was all an accident. That's what Sagan believed till today. It was all, yeah, it just happened to be this way. This like amazing mechanism that just all, um, how is it an accident? Look at the world, look at the intricate, look at the, look, look what happens how a leaf on the tree is able to, uh, is, is able to photosynthesis, you know, study, study the basic science. When you study science, Rambam writes this in Hilkos Yisodei Perah, he says it should bring you closer to Kodesh Baruch when you study nature, study God, study creation. That's our view of things. Aristotelian philosophy, Aristotle, which was dominant till really up to the modern era, but on some level it plays a role, that's why I mention it now. It assumes Aristotle actually was somewhat theist, meaning he acknowledged a creator and a, and a creation of the universe, but he, he, he said things that were off. He assumes that all of creation, all matter, starts with a certain primal substance. Anybody know this? He says it comes from, in Hebrew we call it Homer Hibli, which is material cause that has no form. He, so Aristotle says there was an initial, there, there, everything comes from some, an original something. It's kind of like the mind, which doesn't have a form, but is there. That's Homer Hiuli. We would call it in Latin terms, creatio ex materia, creation from something. Materia, something that exists. The Torah is different. What does the Torah assume? Not creatia ex materia, but rather creatia, you know the term in Latin, ex nihilo. Nihilo, right, from a Latin pronunciation. In Hebrew, we would say, Aristotle says, yesh mi yesh, something from something. In Hebrew, we say, yesh mi ayin, something from nothing. That's creation of the world. 
there was nothing in the physical terms. Of course, it was Kaddish Baruch but he's not anything that we can fathom. He's not in time. He's not in space. And then there was suddenly something. That's yesh mi'ayim. That's our perspective. And it has immediate moral dimension as the mission of Pirkei Avos. Pirkei Avos, you've learned? You yeah. must memorize it. If not memorize it, at least get a decent understanding of the Mishnah. That's morality. So it, here's what the Mishnah Pirkei Avos tells us about creation. The world was created, first of all, yesh mi'ayim, something from nothing. And it was created with ten declarations of a Kaddish Baruch Hashem said, and therefore the world was. Um, the idea, what's the purpose, the Mishnah goes on and says, the potential is, is, is all for the reward for tzaddikim and punishment for the Rishayim. Meaning that from the secular perspective, you totally miss the point if you don't understand that it's all about being, doing a good job in this world. That's how we understand the creation of the universe. Um, Arya, go ahead. Who created God? Nobody. He's not subject to any of the terms. When we start talking about creation and all of these kinds of things, and we can really go off on the subject, I don't really want to digress too much, but um, he's not subject to any of our assumptions about anything else being beyond us. But I like the question and I encourage everything. We understand the Mishnah that I referred to earlier today in Chagiga says, in Dorshim B'maisabreshis. We're not supposed to penetrate too much in the matters of creation. It's beyond us, our brains would blink out. Um, Academics assume that nothing is beyond their grasp. The academic sits in the ivory tower assuming that the entire world is comprehensible. And they sometimes make fools of themselves, writing about, writing with utter authority, because that's how you get your tenure and PhDs and all the rest of that. They write with utter authority about things they can't possibly know about. The, everything, you name it, about the creation of the world. They have all kinds of often arrogant sounding uh, assertions about things that are beyond their, uh, out, of their, out of their grasp. The, in, in, in the base medrash, in a Torah environment, we're very clear, and the mission is defined it for us, there's certain stuff that we accept from the get-go as our limitation. We can't know. Ein Dorshim B'maisabreshis is a full, full-out declaration as the Rashba, the great Rashba from the, um, the Rishonim, he says, Tachlis Hayidia Leida Shaloneida. The purpose of knowledge is to realize we don't know certain things. And therefore, our purpose is to know things that we should know. And that's, that's what we're going to focus on in this class. There were a lot of aspects of, our, of the flow of history to reinforce this linear sense of history that we're really going somewhere. The things are not just randomly happening without a rhyme and reason, but we're really a part of something meaningful. You know, if you think about it this way, imagine for a second, pull ourselves out of there and out of the face measures, and out of your shliner condition, look down. And if we could actually, if, if history could be presented as, to us as some kind of grand mural, it would look so different. It would, it would be so, oh, that's why these things, we would connect chains of events that seemingly, as they were happening, seemed in, not connected. And we'd see, oh, it was all for a purpose. Everything flowed out in a certain way. And there had to be these series of tragedies and those arguments between peoples and that particular war and all the various things to unfold in that way so that history could play itself out in this way. And then I could be a live player in this scheme of things. And along those levels, much is anticipated from the very beginning of time. The, really, some of the key points of history are anticipated. So the Medris teaches us in Gracious Rabbah, Hashem foresees the Chorban Mikdash, the Mikdash being the central place in all of history. Um, he foresaw that from the beginning as follows. 
The Pasuk tells us, Gracious bara Elohim, in the beginning Hashem created, referring to, the Medrash tells us, the base of Mikdash. The ultimate creation was the creation of the temple, the holy temple down the street in Yerushalayim. The next section of the Pasuk, and the land was chaos. Complete mess, anarchy, is a reference to, if the beginning was all about the base of Mikdash, then the land was Tovavohu, referring to? Korban base of Mikdash, Golos, exile, destruction. Now, seeming what we call Hester Punning, it doesn't make sense. I understand history. How could there be gas chambers in, in Auschwitz? Wow, what's the rhyme and reason of everything? And finally, Vayomer Elohim Yihi Or, and God said, Let there be light. What is that hearkening to? Light is Tyra, it's also the light at the end of days. Um, uh, tomorrow, Bezrash Hashem, we're going to get to the, we do a lot of mysticism here, a lot of Kabbalah. Kabbalah plays a central role in history. We'll talk about the ultimate light, what's called the Or Ganus, which existed for 36 hours in the beginning of creation. They hidden light, but then, as the word implies, Ganus, like Niza, means a hidden area. After the first 36 hours of Hashem's infinite wisdom, he took that light and hid it. It's been lying and hidden in, in, in hiding throughout all creation and will come out at the end of days. But, uh, uh, when Hashem says, let there be light, that's a reference to the end of days. The light that will exist in the Messianic era. All of history in a nutshell, just in the very first account. What is the function of history? As the Ramchal describes it, Rav Moshe Chaim Lutzato tells us in Das Tunos, he says, Hashem created the world with goodness and with evil. There are evil forces out there. What's the purpose? There should be goodness, that's all of us. Good forces that will summon, summon all of our strength to overcome the evil. That's what the world, that's what the, uh, that's what we had in the, in the Pasuk, and we're gonna have it in this week's Parsha too. You gotta burn out the evil from your midst. That's their function in this world. That's what we're doing in life. That's the long-term drama of creation. The long-term drama of creation is, is um, the struggle of good over evil, of the spiritual over the physical. Um, it's to prepare the world for the Shekhinah. That's what we're doing here. It's actually, and the final point I'm going to say today, it's actually very interesting. Think about Sefer Breshis. You've learned it all. It's a bunch of trial and error, trials and failures to try to get humanity on board with this divine, eschatological divine mission of bringing goodness to the world. And if you notice, humanity fails repeatedly. I mean, there's the famous failure in Gan Eden, but it doesn't stop there. It, it's another failure with Kain Behevel. It's another major failure in the generation of Enosh, which we'll talk about tomorrow. It's then a colossal failure with the generation of the Flood. It's trial and error, trial and error. And finally, finally, the moment that we're waiting for is when the Jews stood by Harsina and we said, Nasib and Nishma, who we basically signed on to, became part of the contract, is saying, we accept that we're going to be part of this incredible, exciting mission to overcome evil in this world and to, to commit ourselves to pursuing goodness. That's what Kavali Yisrael stands for, and that's really what our history stands for. Are you? Wouldn't you think that all those failures, those preliminary failures, yeah, sure. Well, I, I would think that if I were rejecting my humanity unto God, but I don't go there because I don't think that God is flawed. Um, for example, the entire generation previous to Noah had to be wiped out by a massive flood, which corrupted the entire earth, really. And we're going to be dwelling on this. That's coming up, coming, coming to an episode soon by you. We'll be talking about that. So there's a whole generation of 
And to add to that, that wasn't the first time that, that people had to be wiped out. We, we have a, 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 an yes. interesting measure so long. Adam had to be kicked out of heaven because him and I guess his wife and the generation at the time couldn't live up to expectations. Also true too. So doesn't that specifically the Noah's part, doesn't that constitute a failure on God's part? We don't assume so. We assume, we assume that God is giving us a chance and we blow it. The fact that a whole generation blows it. That they have potential to do the right thing. No, it's Hashem teaching us that you can blow it. You have what's called the Hira Hopshis, that's part of the package. You have freedom of choice. You exercise the choice well and wisely. Good, you'll go to good places. If not, this is your potential fate. There has to be that, that all of that has to be part of the, uh, the rules of the game in order to give us real freedom of choice. But that's all. That's what. He, that's the. That's the rule book as it's laid out in front of us. But it's our failure, not Hashem's. It's He's giving us the chance, and and, and we're not rising to it. As Rosh Hashem, we pick up from here. We're going to talk about the Oregonus. We'll talk about um, evolution. We'll talk about Gan Eden. What happened there, and the creation of an interesting spiritual force called the um, Eruv Rab. The, the, the came out from the, the mixture of good and evil that uh, persists till today as well.